This is the Saturday edition of the Daily Signal podcast. I'm Richard Reich. Today I'm speaking with Gordon Wood, history professor emeritus at Brown University on his new book, Power and Liberty. It's my honor to talk with Gordon Wood today about his new book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution. Gordon Wood is one of our master historians of the American founding. He's the author of numerous books on the subject, books for which he has received numerous awards. Uh, I first started uh, reading Gordon Wood's scholarship my senior year in undergraduate studies, and uh, his book, Creation of the American Republic, published in 1969, won the Bancroft Prize. Uh, His book, Radicalism of the American Revolution, published in 1992, won the Pulitzer Prize for History, along with the Ralph Waldo Emerson Prize. Uh, His book, uh, Empire of Liberty, a History of the Early Republic in 2009, was given the Association of American Publishers Award for History and biography, and that list goes on and on. In 2011, he was awarded a National Humanities Medal by President Obama and the Churchill Bell by Colonial Williamsburg. Gordon Wood, we're glad to have you on the program today. I'm glad to be here. So thinking about your new book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution, you turn to, uh, I'm kind of thinking of it as, how did the Americans become a constitutional people. So uh, maybe talk about uh, the book and uh, what you aim to do with it. Well, the, the constitutionalism has was really, uh, I think, modern constitutionalism was really set off by the American Revolution. Uh, when we think about creating constitutions, and we've created dozens of them since World War II uh, throughout the world, uh, they're written documents. And it's the American experience that really made that Uh, fixed. There had been some written documents earlier, but generally speaking, people had not thought of constitutions in the way they think of them now as a single written document. It's the American experience. Uh, In 1776, each of the states wrote out their constitution, and uh, the the federal constitution, which occurred 10 years, roughly 10 years later, uh, was derived from those state constitutions. Uh, people write out constitutions because they're frightened of power or they want to prescribe what could be done. Government needs to have guidelines and uh, how much power it has. And so constitutions play that role. When you're in doubt of of your institutions, you want things down in black and white so that you can uh, be sure that power does not encroach on, on liberty. The the English Constitution famously is unwritten. It's uh, composed of a lot of different elements, documents, uh, practices, procedures within English constitutionalism. And and as you say, the colonists decide to write things down. Uh, So there's clearly some notion here that writing it down accomplishes something uh, good in the development of liberty, but also how power uh, could be created and yet cabined. Yes, of course. And the, the English had many written documents, so going back to Magna Carta, which uh, uh, are part of the English Constitution. Uh, they had a lot of documents in the 17th century, the uh, bills passed by Parliament, Habeas Corpus Act, and then finally the Bill of Rights of 1688, which uh, in many respects anticipates our own Bill of Rights uh, connected with the federal constitution. So that uh, writing things down is is common. And and of course, uh, we have a written constitution, but we have a lot of unwritten constitutional practices as well. We couldn't exist with this federal constitution with what, 8,000 words. Uh, We fill it in with all kinds of conventions and habits and practices and the British, uh, system uh, uh, has some written documents as well. So th- that, that uh, I think, is, makes us more alike um, than, than, than I think m- many people think. Uh, what, what's different, I suppose, is that the, uh, uh, the English, uh, the English uh, have confidence in their system uh, that uh, perhaps we're not as, quite as confident as, 
as they are in their practices and conventions. Thinking about this, um, this book you've written, uh, a revolution, uh, leaving the mother country, uh, fighting a war, and yet at the same time in your book, you're detailing how the Americans uh, became a constitutional people, uh, even, you know, after the Declaration of Independence, maybe talk about this uh, explosion of the state constitutions, uh, you know, re revoking their colonial charters and putting forward new state constitutions. What's going on there? Yes, well, I think that's something we, we generally ignore. We, when we think of the, the revolution and constitutionalism, we usually think of the federal constitution, which of course occurred 10 years after the Declaration of Independence. But it's the state constitutions uh, that are really important. They're the ones who, uh, which uh, embedded certain practices into our thinking, separation of powers, the idea of Bill of Rights, all of these were attached to most of the state constitutions, which makes the federal constitution uh, derivative of, uh, of what had been done uh, 10 years earlier in the state constitutions. The, the notion of separation of powers is, is crucial. We forbid uh, the simultaneous office holding of legislators or judiciary from sitting in the executive. Uh, and of course that, that forever forbids us from, from parliamentary um, cabinet responsible government, which is what the English model is. I suppose the English model has been copied by more democracies than, than our own system uh, of separation of powers, but it was the fear of corruption, the fear that the executive would, uh, would uh, uh, buy off people in the legislature by appointing them to executive offices that led to that prohibition that's written into all the state constitutions and then written into the federal constitution as well. When, uh, when Hillary Clinton, uh, Senator from New York became uh, a secretary of state, she had to give up her office in the legislature. In, in England, she would have to maintain her office in the, uh, uh, in the legislature if she were gonna sit in the cabinet. It's that difference that, that was, I think most uh, pronounced in the state constitution making of 1776. You have a, a fascinating chapter in the book about the <laughs> Articles of Confederation and you know, the rejection of the Articles of Confederation. That and you also bring forward sort of you know these problems uh, existing under the Articles uh, in the states. And th right. that it, it was it the case that the articles were, weren't functioning well, or was it the case that these new state constitutions had themselves created problems uh, that they were trying to account for with a stronger federal government that could regulate citizens directly? And uh, maybe talk about that because you also I, I tend to think of this period as uh, you know there was just if not chaos, you know just a lot of rampant political dysfunction uh, in the country, and that sort of brought us to this moment of 1787 in the Constitutional Convention, but you, you kind of articulate it differently. Well, I think there is a problem with the articles because I think the best way to understand them is not as an early version of the Constitution. They're a totally different thing. It's a, it's a treaty, a treaty among 13 independent states, all not all that different from the treaties that, that uh, underlie the, the present-day European Union, and that's what it was, a union, a treaty, a league of, of independent states. You, you can't uh, miss that or else you just the whole period looks crazy to you. Uh, each of those states thought they were independent entities uh, with a sovereign power, um, just the way Germany and France uh, think of themselves as sovereign states. They are willing to give up some authority to the EU but they see themselves as sovereign states. When Jefferson thought my country, he meant Virginia, or, or uh, John Adams thought of my country, it was Massachusetts. So that's what the, that's what the articles created. Uh, and they lacked the power to tax and the power to regulate trade. So there were obvious weaknesses in the articles, but the real force, the real driving problems that created the crisis uh, I believe came in the states. Uh, men like Madison and others, and elites essentially, 
were frightened by the excesses of democracy that's taking place in the states. The states had, had the state constitutions had given an enormous amount of power to the popular legislatures, uh, and the power was being abused by by these state legislatures, passing all kinds of legislation uh, that um, that Madison and others, and he's just a spokesman. He's the a spokesman for the for the elites that are concerned about what's happening. They just hadn't anticipated the kind of democratic politics that were emerging uh, with the multiplication, uh, the mutability, and the injustice of state legislation. The multiplication, there was more laws. There were more laws passed, said Madison, in the decades since independence than in the entire colonial period by these state legislatures. And they were changing constantly because you had annual elections in all of the states, an, an innovation for all the states outside of New England, uh, and you'd get, a, 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 a some cases, a 60% turnover in seats. So you have uh, new interests coming in and passing new laws. The mutability of laws was so great, that is the changeability of the laws was so great that judges were finding it hard to know what the law was. And then finally, the injustice, uh, which Madison mainly meant, passing of, of paper money legislation, creating uh, paper money as legal tender instead of gold and silver. And this was hurting creditors. And creditors were uh, a major force behind the, uh, behind the movement towards a, a constitution. Uh, that, I think, is summarizing my argument. Uh, that seems to me the major force. Yeah. If you read... The, the the little essay that Madison wrote, and he is crucial in, in bringing about the um, uh, the the convention, uh, called the vices of the political system I, of the United States. I love that essay. That, yeah, it's a short little essay, and it can be called up. It's, it it was never published, of course. He kept it as a private working paper. Uh, he wrote it in the early early in 1787. In prep, he was a, a, a systematic thinker. He wanted to make sense of what he was doing, and he wrote out these uh, these thoughts. And in, it's in that little essay that you get uh, this uh, fear of uh, of of democracy uh, running amok. And he had had experience in that because he served in the Virginia uh, uh, House for for several years. He had they had a, a rotation in office for the for the Congress under the Articles, and he had served his three years. And he had to get out. And he had no other career aspirations except to be in politics. And so he entered the House of uh, of uh, Burgesses and and uh, uh, House of Delegates, I, sh- I should say and uh, experienced the democratic politics, modern democratic politics, which I, I think appalled him. Uh, and he, he his, it shaped his thinking and helped, but he's not alone in this. Yeah. Uh, you have, uh, uh, otherwise he could never have brought it off. I mean, there were just uh, dozens upon dozens, hundreds of, of elites of various sorts who were, and then other interests too uh, are, the, what Madison and the others did was, was take advantage of the thinking by 1786, I would say the whole political nation, uh, without exception, was ready to add taxing powers and uh, the ability to pass navigation acts, that is to, to uh, shape international trade, was willing to give those to the Articles Congress. Uh, Madison uses that, uh, Madison and his, his followers, uh, and hijacks that movement, and, and instead of reforming the articles, they 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 throw them out, and and create an entirely new government, uh, the federal constitution that we have with us today, uh, something that nobody in 1776 even imagined in their wildest dreams. I know of no one in 1776 that anticipated the kind of federal government that emerged 10 years later. So something awful had to happen in those 10 years to explain yeah. the Constitution. This, I find this, that it's harder to explain the Constitution than it is to explain the revolution itself. The uh, I've read correspondence uh, between Madison and George Washington in this period that we're discussing. And it also seems to be the case that the dysfunction of the state legislatures under the state constitutions threatens the you know overall project that Madison has been a part of that you know that is to say Republican rule uh, 
that right. it, oh, it yeah. could be it could be undone by and then you, know, you have Shay's rebellion uh which you also touch on in this book and just you know can we even put down public disorder uh given the weakness right. of, of the government and I, so it seems to me there's this overall question of what are we you know this could all be for naught uh if we if we don't that's have right that yeah. madison thought that this was a, a crisis of republican government it, it it brought into question whether majority rule could could exist i, I mean madison's response is I, I think within the republican tradition because he could easily uh, and many others would have followed him and said uh, uh, virginians could have said look we republicanism is not working we've got to go to monarchy or some kind of arbitrary rule from above uh they didn't they he was trying to find what he said was a republican remedy for republican diseases and that's what makes it so difficult they want to keep republicanism but they're creating an, a strong national government which for many people smacked of authoritarianism and uh, a quasi-monarchy because the president is given uh, well he's given uh, article two of the constitution is very vague about how strong the president yeah. is the, um, well, i was just going to ask you and thinking about these state constitutions that they're responding to i mean what was the most radical one, uh, and, and what was the most conservative one? Well, the most radical was Pennsylvania, uh, which uh, abolished, uh, really had no executive. They had a multiple executive. Uh, they had no single governor. It was unicameral. There was no, there were just, there was just one house, which uh, appalled John Adams, who was very keen on maintaining a, a tripartite government, that is a governor, an upper house and a lower house. And Pennsylvania does away with that. Uh, and really had a, a quite radical approach. Laws would uh, could had to be ratified by the people in general so that the uh, the upper house becomes the legislature and the lower house is in a sense the, uh, the people themselves. It was opposed by elites in Pennsylvania almost immediately and eventually uh, they forced uh, a, transforma a transformation by, by, the, and by the decades time. In fact, because of the federal government's creation, the, uh, the opponents of the, of the Pennsylvania Constitution uh, were able to uh, revise it in 1790. Um, the most conservative constitution was the one in Massachusetts, which came late. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts put it off and, and they defeated one constitution in 1778. And then finally, uh, John Adams wrote, uh, pretty much wrote the whole constitution. It was passed in 1780 and it set the pattern. The, the thing that it bothered many people, including Jefferson, was how do you make it fundamental? They knew the constitution had to be fundamental. It couldn't be just another statute mm -hmm. passed by the legislature, even though uh, the, in many cases, the legislature had created the Constitution. And they said, well, how do, you ref how do you amend it? How do you protect it against legislative tampering? Well, they did not quite know how to do that. And they kept playing with different ways. For example, in, I think in Delaware, they said, well, you have to have five-sevenths of the legislature. And that is a supermajority to change the Constitution. Others, I think in Maryland, said you had to have two successive legislative bills. Uh, somehow they were seeking some way of making it, uh, making the Constitution superior to ordinary law. Uh, but Massachusetts works out the process. You call a special body, which they now call the convention, a constitutional convention, which had, which had one duty only to make the Constitution, uh, and then it would be sent out to the people for ratification. And that becomes the model and is followed from then on. Uh, New Hampshire follows it a few years in 1784. And then even the French, when they come to make their own constitutions, look at American experience and, and realize you need a special convention, a special body to create this constitution. So that's one of the most important innovations Americans yeah. make to, to uh, world but constitutionalism. It's so the the idea of the idea of fundamental law, the Constitution being fundamental law, 
required innovation from from the uh, early Americans, uh, I suppose, because the British Constitution doesn't really have that concept in the same way. That's right. Well, the, the English Constitution is is created by Parliament. Yeah. It's it's no different. I mean, the the, the Bill of Rights of 1688 is a parliamentary statute. It could be eliminated tomorrow with another parliamentary statute. See that 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 the English uh, don't have a fundamental law in that sense, and that's what Americans wanted to avoid. That uh, putting all this, allowing the legislature to uh, to uh, create the Constitution was was made no sense of a Constitution. I wanted to. We, we were on this thread earlier. I wanted to come back to it, and that being the Republican remedy for a Republican disease, because I think it's also instructive for, you know, maybe people listening who have been told that the Constitution is, you know, anti-democratic or was an attempt by elites to wrest control away from the people, et cetera. And uh, I think it's worth pointing, you point this out in the book, they're not trying to remove control of the government away from the people. They're trying, they, they cement the government in control of the people. They're trying to create points of departure, mechanisms, ways by which that power can be exercised in a deliberative way in the federal government and avoid or you know circumvent a lot of these problems they're experiencing. And uh, you write about that in, in the book. Maybe help us understand that. Well, they're frightened of, of political power. And if political power comes from the executive, they are concerned about that. But if it's coming from the state legislatures, then they're concerned about that. And so that that's the kind of dilemma they have. And they wanted and Madison and his fellow Federalists, as they called themselves quite shrewdly, uh, they should have really been called nationalists. Uh, they they wanted to create a system that could uh, restrain all political power, uh, but at the same time be an energetic government. That's not easy to do. And that is uh, when that's been the American experiment from the beginning to kind of keep a balance between um, protecting people's rights from political power, but at the same time having a government that had enough energy to do the things government needed to do. And that's the dilemma that that um, that the Federalists and Madison and his colleagues faced in 1787. You discuss, you talk about the, the presidency. Do they get this model of executive power, which is a, clearly a departure from the state constitutions, clearly a departure from the Articles of Confederation? Are they returning to the English monarchy uh, for an understanding of executive <laughs> power? Or are they, where else are, where else might they be looking to, well, to put, put this argument? Well, it's question because because George Washington writes to Madison in, I think it's April of 1787, a month before the convention. And he knows that something's going on. Virginia, for example, is, is taking the lead. And it's understandable. Virginia, we have to understand, Virginia is by far the largest state in the Union, the most populous, the richest, the biggest in territory. I mean, Virginia dominates the states as no state ever has in our whole history. It really is uh, that without Virginia, you don't have a United States. It, it, and so it's understandable Virginia takes the lead. And Washington knows that if there's going to be an executive, a single executive, that he will be the, the person. He, he's not uh, modest about that. He knows that. Uh, and so he writes to Madison and says, well, what, what have you done about the executive? What have you and Madison writes back and says, well, I haven't given it much thought. This is a month before the, uh, uh, so, so in his Virginia plan, which uh, others knew about, and the, the governor of the state, Randolph, uh, presents it to the convention, uh, it, it's, it's not clear that it's going to be one person or several people, three people maybe. Uh, so he, Madison, really hadn't, hadn't given it much thought. And when Article 2 is finally written, it just says the, the president is commander-in-chief of the army and uh, will wield all executive authority. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, I think they did draw a lot on, on what, uh, what the crown could do. Uh, and I think they're thinking of that. Uh, but it had to be worked out. As, as Washington uh, realizes when he becomes president, he said, we're, uh, we're in... Uh, strange waters here. We we don't know what to do. There are no precedents. 
and he's feeling his way. And that's why Washington is so important to our history, because he he was careful in his exercise of, of executive authority. Uh, but he also wanted energy in the government. So we have a, a nice balance, I, I think, worked out at least by Washington in the early years of the uh, of the uh, 1790s. What's what's the significance of the presidential veto? I mean, on one level, it's obvious, but what what are you what are they trying to achieve with that? Well, John Adams, of course, is crucial because he 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 wrote his first piece that gets published, uh, Thoughts on Government, in in April of 1776, as a bunch of of other uh, delegates to the Congress, which hadn't yet become independent, hadn't declared independence. They write to him, well, what should we do? with our states. I mean, how are we going to create with our colonials? And so he, he finally he kept writing letters to people. He says, well, I'll just publish it as a, as a little pamphlet. And he sets out the notion of, of a tripartite government that is two houses and an executive. And he wants a full-fledged veto, which is what the king, of course, had in England. Adams is very much taken with the English Constitution. So he wants an absolute veto, that is to say, it could not be overridden by the legislature. Well, that's too much for most uh, people. And and in fact, it was too much that none of the states gave their governors a veto in 1776, except uh, I think South Carolina. But when he comes to write the Massachusetts Constitution, which comes late, as I say, and so there's been some experience now with this, uh, uh, these uh, legislatures running wild, they do give, and, and, Madison, and, and Adams, uh, is forced to give a qualified veto. He wants an absolute veto given to the governor of Massachusetts, but they give him a qualified, could be overridden by uh, two thirds of the legislature, which is what is copied in the federal constitution. Uh, it's just another way of, of balancing off the power of the legislature, which is considerable, uh, giving the, some protection to the executive. Uh, and it's it's Adams who, but he's spe- he's speaking for the uh, whole host of other people who are frightened by too much power in the legislature needs to be offset by some power in the executive. The discussion in your book too on the veto of it being a way to protect the forms of the Constitution uh, uh, of a, you know being able to check a a sort of attempt to form a faction within the legislation, that the, that the president taking into account the entire nation uh, and what he's doing, maybe more so than than those who are in the legislature. Right. And Washington tended to, to think of the veto, and maybe um, sub, subsequent presidents did as well up until modern times, uh, as, a, as when they thought something was unconstitutional. They yeah. they thought that uh, they uh, the, they had the right to veto. Um, now, of course, the veto could be used just because you don't like the the political uh, the policy of of the uh, of the legislation. You don't like the politics of it or whatever. It's not necessarily a constitutional veto. But at the outset, I think that's how Washington tends to interpret it. But I was going to say that. Um, the institution that comes out of the revolution with the most power that you have unanticipated, of course, is the judiciary. And again, this is the institution that is going to interpret the, uh, the, the, the constitution, this fundamental law, and set it alongside uh, legislative statutes and decide uh, whether the statute is, is in conformity to the federal, uh, or to the fundamental law of the constitution. And that becomes the judiciary's role, and it gives it enormous power that we see right right up to our own time. Yeah, definitely. You write in the book about the judicial review, though. Uh, the idea is that the judges are trying to protect uh, the Republican Constitution and the rights of the people uh, in those decisions, and that there's some supposed to be as, you know, as Hamilton says in the Federalist Papers, manifest violation uh, or you know something inconsistent with the manifest tenor of the Constitution that would you know authorize a, a judicial opinion rejecting a popular law or a popularly enacted law. 
that's not the judicial review we have now, I don't think, in, in many respects. Um, but yeah, I, that's, uh, I, I enjoyed well, that chapter. Yeah. And, Hamilton's uh, uh, essay in the Federalist Papers, which is a uh, defense of, of the Constitution by, by its proponents, and, and it's just high-level propaganda on behalf of the Constitution, but it's really high-level, very thoughtful, and of course it's become a, a major document in its own right. But uh, in 78, in, in uh, Federalist number 78, Hamilton's dealing with, a, with, with the uh, anti-Federalist argument in New York, that um, that the state legislature is being uh, is superior to the judges, and and there's no way that judges should have any authority to set aside a representative agent of the people. Well, it's a very powerful argument, and uh, Hamilton has to deal with it. But the way he does is to diminish the representative quality of the. Uh, character of the representatives in the legislature, who do they think they are? They think they're not, they're not the people, they're just agents of the people. And he said, so are the judges, they're agents of the people too. Well, that's quite an extraordinary argument. And, and that's his point, is somehow to create the impression that the, there are these agents of the people and, and they, the, the, the judges are, are simply other kinds of agents of the people, even if they aren't represented, uh, elected. Well, the obvious question that follows from this uh, that people begin raising almost immediately is to say, well, if the, if the judges are agents of the people, then maybe we should elect them. And of course, that's what happens. It starts in the Jacksonian period. And it's right up to our own time, about 39 states yeah. elect their judges. Now that's not exactly what most judges like to, to to be. They don't like being elected. In fact, Justice O'Connor spent uh, the last years of her her retirement there. She was really keen on ending elected judges because she felt that they had become politicians. Um, but it is a, a consequence of, of of Hamilton's argument, which he of course never anticipated. That that uh, by making them agents of the people, then they uh, uh, then they, they the logical thing was to elect them. Now, fortunately, the federal co- constitution doesn't allow for elected judges. Uh, we'd have to have a constitutional amendment if we can do that. And, and our judges, which has become question, one of the debatable issues now, have life tenure um, with no qualifications whatsoever. They're, every other state in the uh, every state in the union, except my own of Rhode Island has various limitations, age limitations, or elections, and so on, uh, of their judges. But uh, uh, the federal ju- judiciary is really quite quite strong. Um, seems to me also what Hamilton's doing is he's he's dealing with this concept we were discussing earlier, fundamental law, and yes. and how how the judiciary will be you know conceive of its role in that light. Um, you know, I guess the popular notion is that Marbury versus Madison events constitutional uh, or judicial review. Uh, is that do you do you think that's true? It seems to me judicial review existed uh, for a long time uh, before that. I mean, the judges in in North America had that understanding. Uh, certainly, well, a part of the English common law system, but it's now you've got this written document to interpret. Well, I think it. It, it's it's not so clear to them at the outset. They they thought the judges might declare some laws unconstitutional, but it would be a rare thing and and something that would happen very very seldomly. I think the important development over those next ten years or so, leading up to to uh, uh, the uh, Marbury decision, is the notion that this fundamental law actually runs in the ordinary court system. I mean, if you have a conception of fundamental law, how do you invoke it? How would the judges invoke it? I think what they do, what has to happen is a kind of domestication of this fundamental law and bring it down, so to speak, so that it can run in the court system, so that the judge can actually treat it the way he treats a statute. Only it's a super statute, it's a super law. Uh, when they first confront it, they think of fundamental law as so fundamental and so awesome 
that you can't invoke it in the courts. Uh, and, and what I think develops is the notion that it is law and therefore it should be treated as law. And that's what that's Marshall's contribution. He said a constitution is just law and we're going to it's fundamental law, it's superior law, but we're going to invoke it in the court system. That, I think, is the important development for America. There's no country that quite duplicates that, brings its constitution, so to speak, down into the court system and treats it as if it were running in the courts as, as law. And I think that's what needs to develop. It's not clear at all in, say, 1780s that fundamental law can be invoked in that way. There are instances uh, that we go back to and look at, but they are just, uh, no one's quite happy with the way things are developed. They're not sure. They don't, they can't really anticipate what happens under Marshall's court and subsequent courts. Yeah, that, that's uh, uh, striking as, as I'm, I'm listening to you uh, describe this. That would that that would imply a lot of things then about how it should be handled uh, as it's brought into uh, federal court decisions. Uh, but the importance of doctrine, precedents, um, mm. and and trying to uphold some sort of veneration. Uh, for the document itself, even as uh, courts develop bodies of law around it, I think. Well, I think that's what happens. They begin to say, look, we can use, we can interpret the Constitution the way we interpret statutes. Uh, They look at precedents. In other words, it's the ability to look at this very short document. And of course, this this goes on at the state level too. The state judges are interpreting their own state constitutions uh, in, in, the, in the same way as just a kind of super statute. And it gives them a kind of flexibility. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to take this 8,000 word document and, and, and really make uh, use it the way the judges have been using it uh, over the last 200 years, plus years. I wanted to uh, move on uh, to your chapter on slavery. Uh, I, I thought it was uh, another instructive chapter. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot has been said in the last few years about the American founding and slavery, uh, including uh, the 1619 Project has uh, tried to advance the view that uh, one of the things that they were fighting for, fighting the British over, was uh, the need to protect slavery. Uh, I'll just ask a a basic question. Uh, Is this a slave owner's constitution? No, no, not at all. It's, uh, in fact, what's interesting about the the revolution is that the revolution makes slavery a problem for the first time in Western civilization and uh, leads to a massive assault on the slave systems of the new world. The United States is the first state, the northern states. Now, it doesn't happen in the south, but the northern states um, almost immediately in 1776 mount a massive assault on slavery, which had been legal in all of these northern states. And within, uh, by 1804, all the northern states have abolished slavery. The first states in the history of the world, or at least the modern world, to abolish slavery. So the abolition movement is in the United States, not in England. England comes late to this. It's 1830s before they're abolishing slavery. Uh, So the New York Times has got it all backwards, the whole story. Uh, It's the northern states that um, mount this massive blow, inflict this massive blow on new world slavery. From then on, Slavery is a major, major issue in politics and won't go away uh, and is a direct line uh, to, to the Civil War. The southern states are put on the defensive and have to defend this institution, which is now being condemned uh, by the bulk of the northern uh, states. Uh, so uh, it, it's just... Uh, it's it's just an extraordinary moment in the history of slavery. It's the United States that takes the lead in abolishing the slave trade as well. The United yeah, States uh, is the first state in the world to to start attacking um, the slave trade, the international slave trade. 
I wanted to just think about when we're in the Constitutional Convention. What's the status of slavery? Is there a consensus amongst the members of that convention about what to do about it uh, or, or how much consideration do they even give it? They give it a lot of consideration. And, and of course, uh, there's a there's this sense, I think, in, in certainly in the northern, among the northerners and maybe among the Virginians. And of course, Virginians, Virginians are important. Of course, nobody really at this point is defending slavery. Everyone knows that it's an evil that should be eliminated. And many people think that it's dying a natural death. And certainly the Virginians do. And as I say, Virginians are a crucial state. Uh, what's happening in Virginia is fascinating because uh, they don't they don't grow cotton. The climate is bad. They uh, they're growing uh, tobacco, but tobacco is exhausting the the uh, soil. So they begin growing wheat. Washington's doing this. This is in the late colonial period, and they don't need the labor that they needed for tobacco uh, to grow wheat. And so they have excess slaves, and they're renting them out in Norfolk and Richmond, uh, and they're being paid wages, so to speak, in rentals. Uh, and this leads them, including Washington, into thinking that slavery is on its last legs, that it's, it's going to become wage labor eventually. So there's a lot of optimism that slavery is dying. Now, they couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, we know what happened. Uh, the, uh, the invention of the cotton gin, which would have been invented by somebody, some engineer one sooner or later, uh, just allows the deep south to, to, to become very prosperous growing cotton. And, slave, and we have more slaves at the end of the revolution than we had at the beginning. Uh, but there is, uh, so they would live with the illusion that it was, was dying. And, and in, the, in the convention, I think there's a sense that um, that leads many of the delegates who want to abolish slavery to feel, well, it's not worth risking the union because Georgia and South Carolina make it very clear that they will walk out of the convention if there's any uh, overt attack on the institution of slavery. Uh, in fact, they're given 20 years to import more slaves because there's a, Article 5 allows for the uh, uh, importation of slaves uh, up to for, t for 20 years before you can ab abolish the slave trade. So that these are concessions made. And the other concession, of course, is the, is the representation, the three-fifths. Uh, the, uh, the Northerners would like the, no representation of slaves in the South. And the, and the South would like the slaves counted fully as a person uh, because that would give them more power in the state legislature. I mean, in the federal legislature, in the House of Representatives. Uh, well, the compromise is three-fifths based on what they had experienced under the Articles of Confederation for taxation purposes. So though, those are the compromises. And then uh, the Fugitive Slave Act uh, really is, uh, they, it actually doesn't arouse much uh, controversy in the convention. It's later that that becomes really the most uh, searing, uh, I think, uh, issue in between North and South later in, on the eve of the Civil War. But um, there's a, a sense, I think, in the part of the North, since slavery is dying naturally, we can, we can certainly uh, make these compromises uh, in order to keep the Union together. Otherwise, the thing will break up and, and the whole experiment will, will, well, will be destroyed. Well, I mean, once you have a national form uh, and you put something together, uh, then presumably that that gives you a way as a nation, uh, you know, maybe to change together, uh, to grow together. Uh, a, that of course is lost if you insist on prohibiting something that two states have said is key. Right, right, and, the, the and they walk away. Then you you've lost that that influence. Right. These are sorts of the things that happen in politics. In your discussion, just briefly, the three fifths clause. You know, it's it is commonly said that that was a dehumanizing gesture towards African slaves. You said it was a legislative compromise, which makes sense to me. That's how we should think yeah, about no, it. Yeah, right? no, of course, the, 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 the North wanted no counting at all, of course, of, of slaves as for representation purposes. Well, that's the natural Northern position. 
which would be to not count them at all. It, 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 the South it wants to count the slaves as fully a person. They're just thinking in terms of representation. Yeah. But but I think it's uh, it's important to to understand that they were scrupulous in in having no mention of the word slave in the Constitution. Uh, Madison was felt that that was important because for the future of this of this document, again anticipating that slavery would not be part of the future of the United States. Now, as I say, they couldn't be more wrong about that, but that's their dream. That's their illusion. And they lived with many illusions. So the revolutionaries had lots of illusions. I think we all have lots of illusions about the future. Uh, That's what makes uh, history so interesting. I don't think that there's been any generation, in my experience, that, that foretold what was going to happen. In the future, uh, they, the, we stumble along. Just real briefly on this in this discussion, um, you know, you know, some have argued that the Electoral College uh, was a concession to the to the South, uh, to the slave states, uh, entrenching their power. Uh, was that a, was that a motive behind the Electoral College, no, or is no, it, or is no, it more electoral- about? A new basis of representation to elect the president. No, no. The Electoral College comes from the fact that the Senate uh, has uh, two senators from each uh, each state, and that comes from the the Great uh, Connecticut Compromise. The small states, and this is not a has anything nothing to do with slavery. The small states simply would not accept Madison's proposal of proportional representation in both houses. He was keen on that because he wanted no semblance of the states to infect uh, the the Constitution. He thought that they would somehow, since people's loyalties were so strong towards their states, he thought that that would vitiate uh, the Constitution. So you got to keep the states out. Well, he loses that uh, in July, the great compromise, we call it, where they, the small states uh, win and two senators from each uh, state. That determines the Electoral College, because the Electoral College is a, is a, is, was a compromise. They didn't know how to elect the president. And they said, well, uh, maybe he should be elected by uh, uh, the, the Congress. And they said, well, no, that would make him dependent on the Congress. Well, maybe one term uh, for seven years. And they said, no, no, that's too long a term. So they went back and forth, and they finally come up with the idea of let's have an alternative Congress, a duplicate Congress that has one duty only every four years to elect the president, and then those electors will then go out of business. Well, that's what was intended, but of course, it didn't quite work out that way. But that's the source of the Electoral College. It's an ingenious kind of solution to this problem they had of how, how you would elect the, uh, the, uh, the president. But it has nothing to do with slavery. It has to do with the compromise of of uh, of allowing two senators for each state, and that's uh, that's driven by the small states. You have a wonderful uh, last chapter. Maybe we can conclude on it on the separation between the public and private sphere as being a key part of American constitutionalism. Uh, could you talk about that? Yes, I, that came from uh, actually a historian that did. Florida State, a guy named Rafe Blaufab, who wrote a book on the French Revolution dealing with the uh, private ownership of public power. And he wrote me a letter saying, you know, you're, this comes out of my radicalism book. He says, you know, you, you really have uh, some sources that are, make it similar to uh, the, the French Revolution. And, and so I decided to, to put all that stuff together and put it into a, an argument that uh, would fit this this uh, issue of the private uh, ownership of public power and how that ended. Um, I think the revolution is a real revolution. Uh, and when we, I think that's been ignored now in all of our debates. There are various ways of looking at it. Tocqueville saw it as democracy, getting rid of aristocracy. Others see it as hierarchy uh, being destroyed and equality uh, coming. But what we have, and this is make, links us up with the French Revolution, uh, although the two revolutions take di- very different forms, uh, is the, the emergence into modernity, a middle class arising 
in, in America, in the North, not in the South. The South remains in the 18th century and remains in the 18th century in some respects right up through the 1930s. Uh, it's the North that changes and becomes modern, becomes a middle-class society uh, devoted to work. And that, um, that and, and, to, to, and Tocqueville saw this, it's, it's devoted to democracy and the abolition of aristocracy. And I think we need to start thinking about the revolution in those broader in those broader terms because we're all wrapped up. We have many people who think of the revolution as, as simply the war, as if it's just a colonial rebellion. When in fact, I think uh, that chapter suggests that the revolution is far more uh, 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 bigger than that. I, to give you one example, prior to the revolution, the city of New York, when it wanted its streets cleaned. It simply mandated that all shop owners and residents must clean the, the sidewalk and street in front of their house. After the revolution, the state of New York commissions the, the authorizes the city of New York to have a public works department. That's modern. That happens within a decade following the revolution. It's this kind of development of modern state power that emerges uh, and Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton are all public institutions. They're chartered by the state and they're public institutions and supported publicly. After the revolution, they become private institutions. The same is true of religion. Religion is probably the most graphic example. Religion was, was public, supported by the state in many cases in, in, the, in, in the colonial period after the revolution. We have a separation of church and state. This, these kinds of developments, I think, symbolize a, a, a real a change in, 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 in thinking and the culture and in the society that we haven't fully appreciated. And that chapter is designed to, to point to that, to that change. Gordon Wood, thank you. Uh, for that, uh, and thank you for this discussion. We've been talking with the author of Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism and the American Revolution. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this Saturday edition of the Daily Signal podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And please leave us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thank you again. We'll be back on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kay Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.